welcome to the Great Magic Podcast. This is an episode of the Creative Weirdos segment where I talk to all kinds of inspiring people who are just general weirdos. And I'm so excited to share this conversation I got to have with Mitch Horowitz, who's one of my favorite authors, lecturers, historians, and thinkers on the weird, the esoteric, the spiritual, the paranormal, all of the things that I love. And man, I just can't tell you how much I love this conversation. And of course, with saying that, I somehow uh, had a dying microphone cable during this whole thing that I didn't pick up on, and my audio sounds a little weird. At first, I thought it was through my microphone on the headphones, but I realized today when the uh, microphone cables all completely died that that was the culprit. So I think I cleaned it up enough, and Mitch sounds great, which is what really matters. So please enjoy this conversation and go check out all of Mitch's work linked below and thank you for being here and getting weird for a little bit with us enjoy the day i'll talk to you tomorrow until then bye Yeah, I want to be mindful of your time and make the most out of this. And I kind of wanted to start with what I was just saying to you, how a, your work's connected to me in a whole bunch of ways. But one of the things that really is connected is seeing you embrace this kind of uh, punk aesthetic and this uh, this DIY attitude mixed with the new age and this uh, generative thought mentality and esoteric things in general which means a lot to me because i feel like those two worlds have been kind of separated for some reason and uh it's so comforting to see somebody really lean into that and i just wanted to start start there and see like what was uh you know the i've heard you talk about the choice to lean into this aesthetic and to really you know dress the way you feel comfortable and represents yourself and the combination of the inner and the outer and there not being a separation and i'd love to just kind of have you start there if you can and, and talk about some of those ideas absolutely uh my interest in esoteric spirituality and my attraction to just the punk aesthetic that i grew up with weren't really planned they just grew together organically like two twin vines interweaving and i did realize at a certain point that i felt a great deal more comfortable uh, a great deal happier uh, as i started just dressing simply as i wished with no other operative intention and i used to uh, appear on a lot of documentaries, uh, particularly cable TV documentaries on History Channel and such, wearing the expected blazer, you know, sometimes over a T-shirt, and very frequently producers would ask you to dress business casual, whatever that means, but <laughs> it sounds like an invitation to the abyss. And <laughs> I, I, I would show up you know, kind of being a, a a good little corporate boy and 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 following the the call sheet as expected, but I didn't look or feel quite like myself. I would watch these things back and think 
wow, I look like a junior faculty member somewhere or <laughs> someone who's trying to sell you a timeshare. And without asking anybody's permission, I just started to show up in my street clothes, which is usually T-shirts or a T-shirt and a leather jacket. And it used to be that on these shows, you would be asked not to wear any logos or things of that nature. But I really don't think the dead Kennedys, you know, could give a shit <laughs> discussing UFOs or, um, you know, the, yeah. the, the keys to esoteric uh, understanding while wearing their T-shirts. And so I just flouted those rules, not as an end to itself, but just as a way to feel uncomfortable and never looked back. And uh, generally it works out really, really well. There are very, very few, if ever, uh, objections. And and I think that it's really helpful to the individual to move among different worlds, just feeling like him or herself. And obviously, that doesn't mean disrespecting other people. I'm not going to show up in flip-flops to a funeral or what have you. But I do think that the spiritual culture today has underestimated the extent to which we're whole beings. And if making some uh, uh, comforting change to one's outward uh, appearance uh, is, is, is part of a person's uh, wish, and one doesn't really know it until it's tried, I want people to feel at liberty to do that. I also want people on the alternative spiritual scene or on the punk scene or whatever it is that they might find themselves tangential to, if any, to feel at liberty to avail themselves of options that are sometimes frowned upon because orthodoxies settle in wherever we are. And the truth is, there may be individuals who want to alter their appearance or their way of being in the world in, in some way. And they might have a peer group that looks down upon what they're doing because they think, oh, well, that's a sellout look, or you've given too much credence to the outer and uh, too much credence to the cosmetic or what have you. And I began to ask myself, what does that really even mean? How would I know where outer uh, ends and inner begins? How would I know where personality ends and so-called essence begins? attachment, non-attachment, identification, non-identification, higher, lower, all of these things are just arbitrary markers. They're not things we can really put our arms around. And it struck me that this can create a really false division that can actually serve to make the individual feel even torn apart at certain aspects of his or her life. And uh, I thought to myself, isn't it all just one whole? Isn't it all just one whole? You know, like, for example, in the world of commerce, uh, sometimes somebody will do something unethical and fall back on the old expression, it's just business. And it always struck me as meaningless. Uh, it's all just one life. Either I tell you the truth or I lie to you. Either I show up because I said I would help you move or I don't show up. You know, there's there's no demarcation among any of these things, including how we comport ourselves in the world. So I just felt a great deal more relaxed once I started working with that rather yeah. than getting hung up on the trip of 
what's inner versus outer, what's eternal versus temporal, because how would any of us really know? Yeah, Mitch, I love that so much. And I love that that was accessed via wearing t-shirts and a leather jacket. Like I love that something as seemingly simple as that can lead straight down the road of questioning whether there is a difference between your inner and outer self. And I mean, I, I so many things that I want to go to off of that one little bit you just said, but the to stick with the aesthetic side of it, it's so important in so many ways. Like, again, uh, the Ramones are one of my favorite bands. And the fact that they played shows wearing T-shirts and fucked up ripped jeans and all of that stuff wasn't a mistake. It was because they were playing at CBGB and they'd get their asses kicked if they didn't dress like that. Like, that was right. an aesthetic choice that was kind of influenced by the environment. And I think we're all this symbiotic combination of inner and outer and being influenced. And them making that choice led to a generation of musicians rejecting pomp and circumstance and big stage shows and 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 this very important idea that the performer can be on the same level as the audience the audience is, does not need a stage we don't we're on the same floor there's no hierarchy there it's all one big thing and they didn't mean to start that by what they were doing they were just trying to play at their local dive bar that was run by motorcycle people and like you know yeah, that yeah. all I love those trinkle downs of the mythology of things. I've been thinking a lot about it with a, uh, I have a kid that's just turning six and starting to get into pop culture and music and forming his own opinions about things. And I started thinking about how I got into those things. And it was all the, like as much of the, I guess, music or the artwork as the mythology around it. Like that story about the Ramones and how they came to play at CBGBs or like the Sonics are one of my favorite examples of this. The the Sonics are a proto-punk uh, band from the 60s that was a garage band that would go into these professional studios and deface the whole studio, tear soundproofing off the wall, stab yeah. cones with ice picks to get this <laughs> distorted sound because they wanted it live and raw and to what, they saw as authentic and that story means as much as them writing psycho or them any of the music they produced and i i wonder a lot of the times like do those stories still exist with the media or how do they exist with like the stuff my kids interacting with that's such a great point that you're raising you know i remember many years ago the comedian sandra bernhardt had a very short-lived uh television talk show i mean it lasted for maybe five episodes but I really liked it because it was it was honest, and she is so raw and honest, and I dig her. And she was speaking with some of her guests about the advent of all the pop singing contest shows, starting with American Idol and uh, you know so on and so forth. And she said, you know, the problem with these shows is that they are enlisting these kids, putting them center stage. And these performers, they have no point of view. They have no outlook. They have no perspective. They're just packaging shit and spewing it back out. And nowadays, when somebody does have an outlook or does have a perspective, it's usually very meme-friendly or market-tested or what have you. And I'm not suggesting necessarily that back in the good old days, you know, everybody yeah. had integrity, because that obviously wasn't true. But... There was an era in which it seems to me performers had their point of view, not necessarily political, and you really felt that eminent 
in their music. And sometimes, like with Dylan, their point of view would seemingly change. And then everybody would get pissed off and <laughs> say, no, I want what you were doing last year and what have you. And and he uh, was and remains so brilliant at just rejecting that. And yeah. I think that sometimes th that willingness to reject the imposition that other people want to place on your art or your expression, whatever it is, um, is also a point of view. And, and that's gotten lost. And it's funny, I have no idea why. It probably was because of some Simpsons episode, but I was thinking the other day about the singer-songwriter Harry Chapin, not necessarily a guy represented as a punk figure, but Harry, uh, who I saw when I was 12 years old uh, performing an acoustic concert, he was uh, a true blue activist. He wanted to conquer... Uh, world Hunger. And he had an organization, which may still be around, called World Hunger Year. And his point of view is that if we as a human community got our shit together, we have sufficient resources so that hunger across the globe could be eradicated in a year. That was Harry's point of view. And he said, I, I do 50% of my concerts for myself, and I do 50% of my concerts uh, to dedicate money to World Hunger Year. And he really damn well held to that point of view. And he died at age 38 in a car crash on the Long Island Expressway on his way to one of his benefit concerts. He was wow. driving a Volkswagen Rabbit, a little thing, I, I, I no longer made. Um, <laughs> I grew up, m m mom drove a Volkswagen Beetle, which had a hole eaten by rust in the back seat. <laughs> floor. You know, like, don't lift the floor mats. Um, you don't want to see what's under there. And, 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 and Harry died at age 38. And, you know, it's a tragedy, but at the same time, the man was telling the truth. He did half his concerts just for his own financial well-being and, and half his concerts to dedicate to World Hunger Year. And I thought, well, that's a point of view. You know, yes, I'm sorry. Yes that he died, I wish he was still here, but that's a point of view. And a point of view does not have to be political. I can't say that enough times because so often politics today is just ostentation. And I think that for a performer to have a point of view is what infuses that person's work with posterity. Otherwise, someone's just covering some song or something like that. It doesn't have any it doesn't have any background to it. And the audience feels that even if they groove to it temporarily, it, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't, it doesn't gain posterity. And I just thought that Bernhardt's point about these performers not having a point of view was so helpful because it used to be that that was so the case. And, and that was true again, you know, even for people who didn't necessarily have some political trip that they were laying, but, but, there was something expressed in their work that that was personal and that was real. That was them. Yes, that's such a good point. And point of view is a perfect phrase for it. I had never thought about it that way, but you're absolutely right. Because how are those, uh, how is that giant bigger mythology that really affects the global consciousness going to shape if you don't have a point of view? And how are you going to form those stories that we were talking about? This makes me think of, I just listened to an interview with Lux Interior, rest in peace, one of my favorite people to espouse the gospel of rock and roll. And um, he was talking about the difference between rock and roll and rock music. 
And his thing is that rock and roll is a folk lifestyle. It is a fashion. It is sex. It is drugs. It is music that teenagers love and should horrify the parents. And that doesn't mean you have to be a teenager to make it. That doesn't mean you have to be dumb or dumbed down, but it means you live in garbage culture in the best way. And rock and rock music is this dumbed down version of that that turns into pop music, which there's nothing wrong with, he says, just don't call it rock and roll because they're two different things. And right, like, right. I, I really jive with that. And I think there's a lot of um, authentic living that comes with that, that can be hard to deal with and problematic and cause, you know, certain issues in its own way. Like, I think speaking so much of the punk aesthetic and lifestyle, there is this tendency to get stuck in a, a mindset with a lot of people that function in the scene. And that can be, you know, a, a little um, uh, stifling. But in general, I think you're absolutely right. That point of view is what's so important. And it really makes things different. And it's so funny this is going to, I was thinking about this. I listened to you earlier talk about um, Anton LaVey's books being mainly published by Avon. And yeah. this seems like, this seems disconnected, but I'm going to connect it in this way that I think it's important to have those bigger cultural aspirations. And again, I'm going to go back to the Ramones. They didn't want to be a DIY underground band. They wanted to be as big as the Beatles. Like Joey Ramone grew up on girl groups and Phil Spector. And like he wanted to be a pop star. He wanted to be on the radio. They made the conscious decision after a certain point to stay with major labels instead of going to the underground in which they essentially started that they probably could have been more successful in in certain ways. But because they had this mentality that they... And I, I, I like to think a little bit weirder that what they were doing wanted to be communicated to a bigger audience. So it wasn't even their decision to do this, but like something made them stay with Sire to RCA to these bigger <laughs> labels. And I think you kind of touched on that really well with the Anton LaVey stuff where he could have done a whole bunch of different publishing routes, but he stuck with Avon because he wanted to affect that big uh, cultural shift. He wanted his ideas out there. Absolutely. Anton wanted a big megaphone and and that was very important to him and i think that we as a culture particularly in the so-called underground get very confused about what selling out means to me selling out is not success selling out is putting money before quality it's that simple money yes. before quality money is very important and money has its place you know i need to pay my electric bill or you and i can't do this interview and so on and so forth but you don't put money in front of quality. And I, I, anytime I've done that, and I can think of maybe only one occasion, and it wasn't even so much money as I was just being a corporate good boy, I have regretted it. And it has been a pain and it has been a heartache that I'm reminded of every time I see the one instance I can count where I actually did that. And it was the only decision I've ever made in my career that I regret. It just has to do with changing a subtitle on a book under pressure from a publisher. And they weren't giving me a better subtitle, which is fine. They were giving me a subtitle that they just thought would would rope in more people. But it was a, it was a pissant effort that didn't have aesthetic integrity. And I regret it deeply in my heart every time I, I encounter it. And a person can tell the truth in any number of settings. It doesn't have to be one form of expression. And I can assure you, having worked with 
major corporate publishers, having worked with indie publishers, having worked with chain bookstores, having worked with independent bookstores. Nobody has a monopoly on truth-telling or integrity. I have worked with independent venues that routinely rip off their artists, that absolutely treat their artists like sheep to be fleeced and have no respect whatsoever for the paying of royalties, the paying of appearance fees. I've also worked with corporate publishers whose behavior has been good, uh, where everybody signed the piece of paper and everybody did what they were supposed to do. So the, 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 there's no inherency to truth-telling or the keeping of one's word uh, belonging to one form of media or another. It's all about relationships. And if you have a relationship with somebody who tells you the truth, go with it. Now, yeah. Anton is an interesting case because when Anton was writing the Satanic Bible, uh, there, there was a smaller DYI publishing scene in America at that time. And of course, it was the pre-digital age. So presenting your work to a publisher, getting a contract, getting it published was pretty much the one way uh, of getting your word out there, unless you wanted to do a zine or something like that. But this was a book. And the publisher, Avon, was lukewarm uh, towards Anton's title, The Satanic Bible. And they wanted him to call it The Bible of the Church of Satan. And Anton, to his credit, was adamant that the phrase, the satanic Bible, it has an allure, it has a violativeness, it has a deliciousness to it. And he stuck with it and he pushed and he pushed and he pushed. And they rightly acceded to his judgment. And if they hadn't, or if he had slackened, we might not have even heard of that book today. We might not have even heard of Anton LaVey today. That title was stellar. That was golden. And I do find, and this is a tangent, but it's worth noting, I do find that powerful titles very often come from a marriage of opposites. So the Satanic Bible is unforgettable. You're marrying two words that seem to be at odds. Uh, that was probably what chose me to choose the title Occult America. Again, it seems like opposites. Anytime, or uh, Gordon White titled his book, The Chaos Protocols. Chaos and protocols are not words that are supposed to go together. Yes. And anytime you marry two opposing words and you're telling the truth, it's magic. It's simply magic. And when people have those impulses, they should really, really stick with them. Because if Anton had bent and not stuck with his title. And this was a guy who wanted mainstream success, who cared about what his publishers thought, as everybody does. Had he given in, that book would not be famous. That book would not have reached goth kids and mall stores. Yeah. And it's so important to stick to that part of your vision that you feel has an electrical charge um, maybe a touch of danger, a forbiddenness, because that that's what's going to attract like-minded people. People aren't looking to you because they 
want you necessarily to be like them or to sound like them. They're looking to you as the artist to provide something that they feel perhaps they don't have. And once you share that, that's when a real relationship with the audience begins. That's so, so dead on, Mitch. And man, I swear, you say one line and I'm like, oh, I have something. And then three more come and I'm like, I have so many different paths I want to go down. But a big thing that just hit me in what you were just saying reminds me of David Lynch's idea that the idea is always first. The idea comes first. Everything should be in support of the idea. And that's like the same thing you were saying where it's quality before money. Like if what you're doing and the two are symbiotic and the idea brings money, awesome. If not, stick with the idea. Don't change the idea to go after the money because the idea is the real gold. And I love that. I love that thought because I think there's so much power and not only ideas and, um, you know, different dreams and things like that, but the imagination in general, I think is something our, our culture undervalues. I don't think people understand how powerful our imaginative life is in regards to the rest of our, like there's not as much separation as people would like to uh, think there is, I, I feel at times. And I think that having those kind of ethics around the imagination and around pursuing those ideas is really important and just kind of strengthens the power of the whole thing. Um, but the other thing that you really made me think of when you just said that as far as the the um, the power of putting two words that are dichotomy or that are opposed and opposites, the dichotomy of that and how that speaks to something so inherent in, in people in general, how we are just this big walking dichotomy. Like every person is a mix of good and bad and nothing is, it's all paradoxical. I love the quote from uh, Douglas Rushkoff where he says, the magic in humans is in our squishiness. It's in the, the in-between. It's the fact that we can, we can have the best, most, you know, beautiful, uh, beautiful picture of the world and really wanted to support that but we have the deep dark too that's also just as authentic and that's where the magic is is kind of in the in the middle of all of that and i think that uh looking at titles in the way you just described is like a very awesome way down that road and just a actually a great transition to talking about some of the paranormal stuff that you write about that i really love because i really think that that is at the heart of what anomalous events are is calling us to observe this dichotomy there's a i'm sorry this is so rambly but my brain is going all over from uh from what you just said but there's this amazing interview with uh terrence mckenna and john mack that is only like 15 minutes have you seen this before i haven't no it's so good it's it's in the same I want to say they were in Peru for some sort of conference. It's the same time where Terrence McKenna in, in, interviews Ramdas, which is also like one of my favorite things to watch, and I highly recommend. Mm-hmm. But I'll link the Terrence McKenna and John Mack interview in the um, notes because people should – this interview, which again is 15 minutes, says more about the UFO and paranormal than like – years of listening to podcasts and reading about it has for me and there's this one quote like the whole interview's done and john mack uh, i think most people know that listen to this is a harvard psychologist who got really involved in alien abduction cases in the 1990s and uh this is when he started having like experienced their groups to his house and like really investigating what is going on here and less in the mechanical way and more in the meaning like what's the true meaning of these encounters not like what's the physical thing happening um so he goes through all of this and talks about how he feels like there's this communication with the earth and 
human culture that is going on when you look at the different trends. But he ends it by saying, Terrence, I just want to say one thing for five minutes. And I have this written down because I, I butcher it all the time. But he says something along the lines of the reason that these events happen is because the one unforgivable sin to the Western mind is when something that should be in the spirit world transgresses and shows up in the physical world. And when that occurs, it has the ability to shatter belief structure of the Western mind in which he felt needed to be shattered at this point. And I think that is so dead on to what is going on with a lot of these anomalous occurrences that it's these injection points of novelty that's meant to stop and inspire you to remember that this world is fucking magic and there's a lot of like amazing things going on so i just kind of wanted to start there and then see you see where you're at with all of the uh paranormal stuff these days (laughs) well i i I, i'm somebody who's never really collected phenomena you know i i i mean sometimes you go to a, a a new age center and within 30 seconds 10 different people want to tell you who they're reincarnated from and <laughs> they knew you in a past life and so forth and so on. And, and, and sometimes it, it gets very rote and very tiresome, but when unusual things occur, when the physical meets the extra physical or when something occurs that is so outside the boundaries of, of anything that can be measured on an actuarial table uh, which, by the way, you know, is is a great tool for deciding how many men in Idaho are going to have their wisdom teeth removed in a given year, but a really shitty tool for evaluating the emotional impact of something in an individual's life. And sometimes something has such a, a an extraordinary and pronounced emotional impact, such intimate meaning to the individual that it's off the charts of any any measurement. So some meaningful event occurs and we begin to see a comportment between inner thought and outer experience. I've had such things uh, happen to me on precious, precious, rare occasions. But when they do happen, such as searching for an object, a very unusual object, and then finding it in the most unlikely place at the most propitious moment at a time when emotions around the issue are running very high, it's just incredibly meaningful. And bizarre events like that occur so broadly across the population that people will have a clairvoyant dream or a crisis apparition or a vision of something occurring that occurs down to the letter. It, it, it can be absolutely remarkable, and it shakes one's sense of reality. It shakes one's sense of who we really are, what we're really doing. And I, I do believe in a perceptual basis of reality. I do think that we are in a process of selecting events in a very complex world where there's a lot of countervailing factors and the psyche is not necessarily the only game in town. There's a lot of different shit occurring. Um, <laughs> but we're selecting things, I think, by emotional conviction, emotional persuasion, and the sense of passion we have in the game. Magic won't just appear. Magic is something where the individual needs to have an absolutely impassioned need and to have some real skin in the game. And if a person doesn't have skin in the game, then the likelihood is 
what they're looking for may actually not be altogether that important to them, or it may be that there are internal contradictions at work that are going to produce something else altogether. I've also had the episode where I didn't get something I wanted, and then I later realized that had I gotten that thing, it would have been a catastrophe, a catastrophe. (laughs) And I wondered if there's something more than randomness occurring, and I, I believe there is because we just have so much evidence to that effect Um, both in terms of human testimony and different scientific models that we're protected sometimes. And what is it that's protecting us? I've, I've very, very often wondered about that because I've, I've hungered for things sometimes only to realize later that had they arrived, the outcome would have been disastrous. And, and, and when you face that very acutely, uh, not just in some casual way, but very acutely, it begs the question of, is there something protecting us sometimes? And what is what is that something? So that's a, that's a kind of query that is very hot for me right now. I have absolutely no answers <laughs> you know, to bring to it, but it's a very that's, hot query for me. That's a beautiful question, sure. and I love it because it... it, it, it uh, checks off the boxes of so many other questions that fall on those lines in a lot of ways. And it makes me think of um, a lot of things, but one, just the fact that I love bringing up the paranormal and things like that. And this is where we lead to is talking about consciousness and like, the bigger stuff. Cause I think that's the other like mechanism, Mike Cleland, who I had on the podcast recently and is one of my favorite writers and talkers, experiencers about this stuff. He says that if you're talking about aliens or cryptids or any of this stuff, and you don't talk about the meaning of life and consciousness within five minutes, you're doing it wrong. You're using the stuff in the wrong way. And I think there's a, yeah. a real, truth to that and it's very profound but it also makes me think of what you've talked about with the work of uh daryl bem i believe his name is and and this idea of um retroactively affecting things with uh reflection and the idea that when you didn't get that thing you thought was going to be the thing you needed and then later realized it would have been horrible does your realization of that happening later on affect you getting it and avoiding that catastrophe in general like those type of things seem very connected to me in a lot of really interesting ways. And I would love for you to talk about Bem's work in general, because I've never Absolutely. heard about him. And I, I'm really into like, a, or not really into, but I've tried to grok things from like people like Eric Wargo, who talk about these mm-hmm. things with time. And and Bem's work did it in a way that was more digestible to me, or the way you presented it via his work was more digestible. So I'd love for you to touch on that. That's great. Bem has opened up so many interesting vistas and questions. He is a clinical psychologist at Cornell, and he spent 10 years structuring parapsychology experiments to determine whether you could measure precognition and whether precognition was retrocausal and whether or not events occurring in the so-called future, which is really just conceptual since we know time bends in certain conditions like extreme speed or extreme gravity, whether or not events that we perceive as existing in the future, based on our current, you know, sense of ourselves as as five sensory beings, 
could have an effect on the so-called uh, present or the so-called past. And the spiritual philosopher G.I. Gurdjieff made the observation that the past controls the future, but the present controls the past. And it's very worth living with that statement because there's a lot of folds within it. And Bem, in effect, put this to the test within a certain very narrow lane. He structured a variety of experiments very painstakingly and with great transparency over the course of about 10 years um, that there were a variety of different models, but his most innovative models involved giving subjects a simple word memorization list where they might memorize a list of 10 words and then try to recall those 10 words or so to a, a clinician. And the results would be as, as you would guess, you know, maybe you'd remember five or six of the 10 words. And then he would perform the same test again with an added wrinkle, which is that the person would, again, memorize a word list, repeat their uh, recollection to a clinician, but with the added wrinkle that they would study the same word list again uh, right after the test. And the results would spike. The pooled data would demonstrate again and again over thousands of trials a, a 2 or 3% spike in their memory capacity based on future memorization, which suggested a retrocausal effect. And Bem published a paper about this in 2011, became hugely controversial. He suffered terrible calumny for this. People pissed all over him. He was um, accused of everything from fraud to satire to just sheer lunacy, as, as one critic kindly put it. And I reviewed Bem's data 10 years after the fact, when there was sufficient time for it to be meta-analyzed. A meta-analysis is where you group similar but different experiments into one study and try to determine whether there's a confirmatory effect. So BEM took the a very unusual step in the social sciences, in fact, I would say even unprecedented, of not only being really transparent about his data, his gathering methods, but he prepared an instruction manual for any clinician who wanted to repeat or retread his efforts. And he prepared software at his own expense that anybody could use to replicate these efforts. So 10 years down the road, BEM's data was subjected to a meta-analysis of that was encompassing of uh, 90 studies in 33 different labs in 14 different nations, and the results proved confirmatory. They matched up statistically with the original results of his trials. Now, one of the wraps on ESP research, and you'll find this throughout Wikipedia, is that it proves non-replicable. That is absolutely false. That, that's a position of, of sheer sentiment that's not matched up by the facts. And yet Wiki's crowdsourcing, which on this particular issue is very skewed towards materialism, produces tremendous inaccuracy in its pieces on parapsychology. Great source if you want to learn about the Napoleonic Wars. <laughs> really shitty source if you want to learn about ESP research and parapsychology. So those yes. results have proven bulletproof according to the best standards that we've got. And people talk about a decline effect 
uh, in the social sciences in general, but part, you know, where you get uh, poorer and poorer results as time goes on with different medical or social experiments. But the whole purpose of a meta-analysis is to, is to trace out the issues inherent in a decline effect and determine whether that decline effect is anomalous or is general across the body of experiments. So that's why meta-analysis is really important uh, where decline effects show up. And they show up again throughout the social and medical sciences. So we have a 10-year running record of BEMS experiments and similar experiments that's proven confirmatory. It's bulletproof. It's it's That's bulletproof. Amazing. If you wanna, if 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 you want to accept the scientific model, if you don't want to accept yeah. the scientific model, be my guest, and we can have a whole other discussion. But I, if that's yeah. what is the name of the game, then then his results have proven sterling. So what it presents us with is the very distinct and real possibility that what you do in the future does, in fact impact what you experience as the present. And again, these are all conditional terms, past, mm -hmm. present, future. Uh, I mean, these concepts are violated in Einstein's theories, which have been proven by experiment. These concepts are violated in quantum mechanics and in the implications of quantum mechanics. They're conditional. They're simply conditional. Yeah. So it presents a wonderful, wonderful tool of liberty for the human situation in that what you do after the fact, so to speak, can actually impact what you experience in our perception of present in concrete, measurable ways, not just in matters of perception, but in matters of actuality. And um, the Harvard uh, uh, clinical psychologist, uh, Steven Pinker, uh, fancies himself uh, a skewering skeptic of all things parapsychological. And I gave a presentation once on BEM's material and Pinker challenged it and said, are you actually saying that if a student gets a B plus on a paper, by studying after the fact, he can increase his grade to a, a minus? And one of the rules of debate is that you're not supposed to accept the premise of your opponent. But in this case, I'll accept Pinker's premise, and the answer to that question is yes. That's exactly yes. what I'm fucking saying. And <laughs> no, it's not that your 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 grade magically changes in your professor's inbox from a B plus to an A minus. That's not what Bem was showing or attempting to show. What he was showing is that performance is enhanced. Performance yes. is enhanced, and that violates all common observation, and it's confirmed by what what the 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 rationalistic lords of materialist culture love to refer to as science their sacralized yes. term science is nothing other than methodological replication that's all it is it's methodological replication it's not a holy word that we have to bow in no. front of and if you actually place stock in methodological replication and you disagree with them, you're in a position of sentiment. It's that simple. Yes. And yes. so I want people to feel very aroused by this. I want people to feel possibilities in this. Um, there's a um, Muay Thai fighter named Spencer Hadley, really great guy, who had, uh, he's a Thai kickboxer. And Spencer had a championship match outside of Austin, Texas, a few months ago. 
And he came to me and he said, you know, the match is nine days away and I'm feeling kind of nervous. And I'm wondering if there's anything that you can recommend that will help me with my mental game. And so I suggested to him a very simple exercise because I believe in simple things. I believe a simple idea applied with conviction can produce wonders. Uh, profundity appears only in application. So I am very down with simple ideas, especially given that most people won't do anything anyway. So you know, <laughs> they talk, but they don't do. And if you present somebody with a simple idea, all, all greater is the likelihood that they might actually try it. So I presented him with an exercise that I'm very into called um, the 30-day mental challenge, which in short is just a, 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 a cultivating forward-thinking thoughts, productive thoughts, constructive thoughts, for 30 days, seeing what happens. And what usually happens is surprising if someone actually does it. And so Spencer said, well, I, I dig that and I will do it, but my match is just a few days away. Do you have anything that, that could work in a more short-term sense? And I explained to him uh, Bem's work and I said, there's every reason for you to believe that doing this exercise and seeing it through may very well have a retrocausal effect on your performance in the fight itself. And I can guarantee you, your opponent's coaches are not talking to him about retrocausality. So this yeah. is your secret weapon. So <laughs> let's do this. And you can rest assured that not only will it be useful to you for the nine days leading up to the match, but there's every reason to believe that it will have performance-enhancing effects based on the retrocausal findings that emerged from BEM's studies. And he did it. Uh, he won the match. He was obviously very well prepared. People can watch the match on YouTube. Um, his entry music, most fighters uses their entry music, some ear-bleeding techno metal or, or, yes. or, or, or really hardcore hip-hop. And he came out to the Belinda Carlisle song, Heaven is a Place on Earth. And, um, <laughs> and one Amazing. of the said, I love that he's coming out to Belinda Carlisle. That just makes me so happy. And he was totally relaxed. He was totally with it. Uh, he won the fight. Now he was obviously well prepared. And there's a lot of things that contributed to his victory. But I believe, and I think he would believe, uh, he would share his own uh, conviction uh, that 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 exercise uh, helped. And yeah. it's just an experiment. You know, it's just something to try. Our, uh, most of the time uh, we talk, but but we don't actually act on anything. Uh, we nod our heads in agreement that, yeah, know thyself. Good idea. But <laughs> how many of us really stand naked in front of what that means, especially when knowing oneself is usually mirrored in one's relationships and how other people feel about us. And anyway, I say all this because the parapsychology research that I care so deeply about opens up human vistas that bring agency, potentially, to the individual, that bring an increased power to the individual. And I want the same thing for myself that I want for for my readers and co-seekers, which is a, a sense of increased personal power and agency. Yes. Oh my, Mitch, so much of that is beautiful. And I'm, I loved every minute of it. 
some things that make me that come to my mind directly. And, and I love how the example of him coming out to that song and how there's a playfulness. I think playfulness is so important when it comes to this stuff. And whether you're looking at it in the lens of like paranormal anomalous events, there's always this kind of trickster playful innocence tied to those events, or you're looking at it via the uh, parapsychological. It seems like when people lean into the fact that this is something that they can um, uh, loosen their thinking around. They can become less rigid around. It seems like playfulness just comes and bubbles up and becomes part of the experience, which I love because I, I feel like those are secondary triggers almost. Like the first trigger is doing exactly what you were talking about, like the 30-day challenge or 30-day miracle challenge and those things. But then to imbue that with a element of creativity or um, I think sharing has a lot to do with it. I think mm -hmm. like having these ideas and sharing them, people, um, one of the things I've loved that kind of ties back into Bem's work a little bit that I've heard uh, Eric Wargo talk about in um, regards to synchronicities and things along those lines is that part of the trigger for a synchronicity is sharing that synchronicity after it happens. And mm -hmm. he has this mm -hmm. definition of synchronicity that I really like, and I'm probably going to kind of butcher it, but something along the lines of synchronicity is when is what it feels like when we precognitively orient towards a rewarding miracle in our life. And when we can do that, then it just kind of, even if it doesn't always happen, it leads you to a more creative and more positive life view in general. So I feel like just like you were saying, the experiment and calling people to live and how weird this stuff can really get is important. And I see it a lot. Um, I see it pop up more when I'm really invested in something creative, creatively, like this podcast, for example, has led to so many little synchronicities that if I wasn't looking for them, I probably never would have noticed them. I sent you a message of this book I stumbled across cleaning the, uh, what is it? Uh, Beyond Space and Time, an ESP casebook by Martin Eben, right? And I, oh, yeah. I found... I found this book cleaning my studio the other day. I bought this years ago at some used bookstore and just never even thought it just looked cool. And I was like, I'm going to buy this. And then I look, I'm like, I'm pretty sure I've heard Mitch write about talk about this guy or it's in one of his books. And, and I was like, that's really weird that I just found this while I was listening to a podcast you were on kind of getting ready for our chat. And there's little things like that, like universal nods that you're on the right direction that you can really enhance your life by leaning into. And, Really, it just makes the world a, a a more fun place, and that's kind of what I'm in in this for is to have more fun. Like you know, this is all about like enjoying this weird ride we're on. And there's a a, a writer I really like named Joshua Cutchin, and uh, he has written a lot of really great books. He has a new one out that is um, all about tying the ecology of death and the paranormal or the mythology <laughs> of paranormal to death and a whole bunch of really cool ideas. But one of the things he says in there is there to re-enchant the world is not to make the world magic or not to make the mundane magic, but to remember that the mundane is magic. And I think little things like mm -hmm. what we're talking about is exactly that. And like uh, the case studies that Bem is, is doing is showing something that we've seen via artists, like again, to bring up Eric Wargo, he has a whole work right now that's about precognitive work via artistic experiences and creative experiences and people that like um, come to these amazing works and don't really know how they came to them. And then there also seems to be this element of predicting the future or changing the past that's tied to it all. So time is just this, this huge thing. And 
that ties into one other thing I actually wanted to ask you because we're getting close to an hour here and I want to make sure I, uh, I I'm let you go. Excited. I'm really enjoying it. So, you know. <laughs> okay, cool. Are you familiar with uh, with Grant Morrison's talk at DisinfoCon from the early 90s? No, I've heard about it, but I've never watched it. So he's one of my, he was probably the first person that got me into chaos magic and like so many others. Like he was the first person where I got to see this um, investment in the imagination create changes in the 3D real world. And that was really important to me growing up. And he has this whole speech in DisinfoCon that is amazing, but he starts it out talking about an experience he has at Kathmandu. And I think this first statement he makes giving this speech is so important. He says, I got abducted by aliens in Kathmandu because I went to Kathmandu to get abducted by aliens. And to uh, to kind of tell the story really shortly, he goes to Kathmandu, takes mushrooms. There is a temple there that if you run up all the stairs in one breath, you're apparently supposed to achieve instant enlightenment, right? So him and his friends take a bunch of mushrooms, go there, run up these stairs in one breath, and they do it. And he's like, at that moment, I had this experience with these silver blob alien entities, right? And they communicated to me that they come here because we have this specific experience with time and they need our linear conception of time to grow things like ideas. Ideas and artwork and creativity don't exist in the way that they do here in our reality and other realities. And they come here to use us as an artistic expression to grow ideas in time. And I fucking love that because I think there's so many instances of these, some of my favorite paranormal or weird things are like hyperstitions where fictional characters become real like uh, Neil Neil Gaiman talking to Corazon from the Sandman and Corazon saying, you have to put me in this book to keep my mythology going. There's so many instances where there's these mythological um, ideas or characters that seem to come here to make sure their stories are retold for modern mythology. And I love that that's the same thing that Grant Morrison gets communicated via these alien entities. And then he makes the invisibles based around that experience. And the invisibles are a hyper sigil that he created via comics. And he put himself in the book. He gave himself a flesh eating bacteria that becomes real. He suffers from a flesh eating bacteria in real life. He writes himself getting better, falling in love. All of this happens via this hyper sigil that he makes in The Invisibles that was inspired by this experience he had in Kathmandu. And the reason I thought about that is because one of the things he did in those comics that were published in like 1993 or 94, in the endnotes in the back, the letters pages, he told you how to do a chaos magic sigil, like take the consonants out. So he oh. shared what he was doing yeah. and that infected a whole group of people that didn't even know what chaos magic was have no clue who like austin spare is or anybody any magical lineage including myself who was like a 16 year old kid and so he was imbuing that idea in this comic that was part of his mystical experience and was also throwing in there in things like dolce base it was one of the first transgendered characters in comics history that was a superhero badass the, the main character that starts out with is a homeless schizophrenic man who's the most powerful wizard in the world. Like All of this stuff is just this pile of mythology that he's building on and I think is one of the reasons that his hypersigil worked and like it that sharing of it all is important. And I'm sorry that was a lot of rambling there, but I oh, kind no, of... I dig it. I, I, I really dig it. I, I'd like to read Gaiman's instructions on sigils. I'm always interested in people's different methods of using them I'm also really interested right now in whether magic can be liberated from 
ceremony, e even something as simple as a sigil. If we accept that there's an extra physical component to our psyches, is that acceptance itself sufficient so that we can begin to exercise that element of our lives without liturgy, ceremony, ritual? I really am very, very interested right now, and I write about this in my book, Daydream Believer, of whether there are simpler and simpler ways of summoning these capacities for which ritual, especially in the past, especially in connection with the traditional religions, has been a very basic part. But maybe, maybe the individual doesn't need any kind of ritual. And even in certain very basic elementary systems, like new thought, for example, where we presume that thoughts are causative, we try in new thought, as the age-old practice goes, to assume the feeling state of the wish fulfilled. But if an individual is staggering under depression or grief or addiction or fear, um, then assuming that feeling state can be impossible. Emotions are stronger than thoughts. If emotions weren't stronger than thoughts, if physicality wasn't stronger than thoughts in terms of the pull that it, 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 it evinces on us, then there would be no addictions, for example, or people wouldn't have angry outbursts or people wouldn't get themselves into positions where they know they're going to get hurt because the intellect, of course, can tell us, don't do that, that's bad for you, but then the body has its way, the emotions have their way. So we're not able to pit intellect against emotion. If we were capable of pitting intellect against emotion, we would all be wizards in a certain sense. <laughs> but if a person has a pronounced need in his or her life, and if they're in a state of emotional difficulty, that precludes their being able to assume the feeling state of the wish fulfilled, which is often seen as the royal road to unlocking the creative energies of thought. What if the impassioned wish is enough? What if yeah. the, the, the finely defined, passionately held, deeply convicted speak, uh, wish is sufficient in and of itself to deliver you to that place of mental creativity. So I, I explore that in Daydream Believer. I'm working with that increasingly in my life because it seems to me that Mother Nature didn't play some cruel joke on us where you can have what you want, but only if you already assume that you have it. Because yes. an individual who's in a state of fear, for example, and some states of fear are very legit, uh, is unable to make that psychical leap, but maybe it's not necessary. Maybe the wish itself is what's required. And the wish, of course, means really, really, really acknowledging what you want. And that can be very difficult because we internalize all kinds of peer pressure and we repeat things to ourselves by rote. I want to be of service. I want to do this. I want to do that. And, and we may be divorcing ourselves, distancing ourselves from what we really wish for. And that's something that a person has to face alone. And the, yeah. the, the good news, so far as I'm concerned, is that 
the intimate confines of your own psyche are something that you don't have to share with anybody. You don't tell your girlfriend or your spouse or your shrink or you know, your, your guru what you're doing. It's, it's yours. It belongs to you. It may be the last cordon of actual privacy that we possess in this world. But, but the person has to be very brave about what he or she wants. You know, and this kind of goes back to what you were saying about Joey Ramone, for example. You know, Joey, Joey wanted to work with Sire Records. Joey wanted to work with Phil Spector. Joey uh, loved the music he grew up on, and he wanted to succeed within that framework. And acknowledging to yourself what you really want without internal concern for what you're supposed to want or how you're supposed to reprocess it through a sugary language emanating from some of the religious traditions or some of the modern orthodoxies is an opportunity that's available to everybody. But it means you have to really be heavy with yourself. And I, I, I mean, there's no question that's more apt to prompt self-deception than asking an individual, what do you want? We all think we know what we want, and we're all very accustomed over the course of decades and decades and decades of internally repeating to ourselves what we want. But is that really it? Is that really it? And only the individual can answer that question for him or herself. But I guarantee that if a person takes time to make an unembarrassed, strictly internal exploration of what they want, they will come to a surprising place. So enacting the wish means that the wish must be sincere. Uh, in a manner of looking at things, you're going to get some iteration of what you want. So be very, very careful because it could take you by surprise and you could feel very jarred and alienated by the arrival of that thing that you wanted. Like, oh, how the fuck did this happen? And it's like, well, how the fuck it happened is that it's it's what you, the individual, really wished for and what a tragedy to not be cognizant of that, not be aware of that, not have that internal yes. honesty. And that very often does involve privacy, keeping it to yourself, not sharing it with other people, because the point is not to reinforce, but to elude uh, peer pressure, which gets very internalized. Yeah, I can, couldn't agree more. And I feel like that's harder to do than ever in social media and everything else as far as that, like really taking a non- um, or really looking at yourself without the influence of the others and society and culture in general. So I, I really, I think there's something to that. I was thinking about this actually, because it's one of my favorite things you talk about in Daydream Believer. And my, my uh, son has been incredibly sick the last five days. And like the feeling of having a kid that's like laying on the couch in like a fevery sweat for five days where normally they're just this little fucking ball of craziness is right. so heart-wrenching and the feeling of wanting him to feel better i was like oh that's the feeling of want that's how like that spoke so true to me and then when i thought about that uh, same level of intensity through other things i tell myself i want i'm like oh i don't really want that that's not even close to how much i want my kid to be better right now and right, you, i feel right. i feel like it's important to want everything in your life to that like or figure out what you want in life to that uh intensity regardless of it being whether the um 
your career or your society, your um, social structure or any of these things. And I think there's like a great power to that. And I, I also, I love that simplification. I think there's so much that I'm really lucky. I get paid to draw pictures. I get like, like the hardest thing I have to do is like this morning before we got on our call here, I had to go to, I, my main gig is doing illustration work for a coffee company. We silk screen all the bags in house. And like, I do different illustrations for each coffee because coffee is fucking unique and magical. And each bag should represent how unique and magical the Break coffee it right is. now. We would exactly. be really without coffee. <laughs> it's so true. So the hardest thing I have to do is like go down to the roastery and taste a bunch of coffees that I'm going to be drawing pictures for that are coming out. And like, I'm like, Oh man, I am lucky that for the most part, I get to sit in this garage and think about things that we're talking about and live this like creative reflective life where like my dad thinking about how he worked at a liquor store his whole life for 10 hours a day. And they came home and took us to soccer practice or guitar lessons or all this shit. I'm like, he didn't have time to fucking sit here and do ritual practice or even cast a sigil or any of this stuff and how important it is to break down the barriers of access to that. Because I think it reminds us, like we were saying earlier, how powerful our creative minds are and how important it is to invest in that side of things. And I've been thinking about it a lot and the idea that it's like, it's like power chords. It's like how much more powerful is it just taking those two notes out of what is usually like a three or more note structure and just playing those two notes as hard, as fast and as loud as possible. And like, I think that's kind of the same thing that you're getting at is that you just need to find the power chords of what works for you and it's going to be more effective. And I love that. And, and they have to be the truth. And the truth, again, even though it's in private, can be hard to face. I mean, the individual might think, well, I want money, and then immediately starts thinking, oh, no, I'm told that happiness comes from within, and money doesn't make you happy. It's like, well, how do I know that money doesn't make you happy? I mean, people always like talking about things that they haven't actually attained. It's yes. like, if you attained it, then you could judge and be like, oh, pretty damn well does make me happy, or, or maybe it does, but there's another area of my life that's suffering, or what have you. But we mustn't rely upon these decisions made by other people, these nostrums that get handed down to us telling us what's what. I've heard a lot of people say things about this doesn't make you happy, that doesn't make you happy. And in most cases, they don't have the thing itself. So there's no actual operant point from which to make that judgment. Or they might have it but they wouldn't give it up for the world. You know, the, the New York Times columnist, David Brooks, who takes a lot of shit, and I, I do think he's a, a an authentic searcher, and I'm not pissing on David, but he wrote a column about how by the time he had his fourth best-selling book, he was indifferent to the whole thing, and 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 it caused him to wonder about his values and all our values. And I was like, all right, David, point taken, but would you give that up? Would you rather be <laughs> writing a column, you know, uh, for a, a regional newspaper somewhere that can be arranged? And, you know, I, I, I mean, you might say there's something else. But for me, personally, I didn't publish my first book until I was age 43, going on 44. And I'll never forget when I saw that that book go up for presale on Amazon. It was as if I had stormed heaven. I mean, I was so stoked, and it was a feeling I'll never, never forget. Uh, did it resolve and fix everything in my life? No, but my life would have been in agony, quietly, albeit, if I had never 
attain that. And seeing my byline in print and online has been one of the signature episodes of happiness and enduring happiness uh, in my life. And so you have to attain the thing before you can make a judgment about it. Now, there may be a situation where the person doesn't attain the thing, and then he or she has to say, all right, well, you know, I just don't know, but maybe there's some alternative path I could take that will avail me of the fruit I was going for in that situation. And that's 100% legit. But don't allow your wish to get taken away from you by decisions that have been made in another time and place and just gotten repeated to us by translation of translation of translation, which is often what happens in our spiritual culture, in our therapeutic culture. There's no reason that the individual has to accept any of that. Yeah, and that's so powerful. I absolutely love that. And I think that the more the more that people can kind of have a looser approach to these things, the more they work. And there's something to what you've said as far as it's in the doing. Like as soon as you start doing this stuff, there's a reason that not only like esoteric literature have like warnings about starting this stuff, but also like meditation. And when you listen to people like uh, Trogan Trump of Rinpoche or even Ram Dass talk about the idea of starting a meditative practice, they're like, be careful. This shit is not like you're going to start hearing stuff and it's going to be tough and it's going to be weird. And like, it's not all light and, you know, the meditation we're sold today that's making you a better, more effective worker and to concentrate longer. When you really sit quiet with yourself in whatever way that is, a lot of weird shit pops up and you start realizing that maybe not all of it's from inside directly. And like, there's all of these worldviews that come to you. And I mean, that's honestly... one of my favorite things to hear you talk about and i love how you've connected that to this idea of 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 a positive mental attitude and taking away the shit talking culture and things and how you know engaging in gossip and things like that hurts you as much as anything else because and even you know i mainly function in a I guess, scene of artists and people who are paranormal uh, investigators, writers, professional weirdos, right? And I'm like, oh, yeah, these are two awesome, open-minded, loose-thinking, not very rigid scenes. And that is not more far from the truth. The amount of shit talking and infighting and everything. I'm like, you guys are all just talking about fucking Bigfoot. Just chill out and like, you know, let's have some fun with this. And like, it's just so interesting. I think that... um, you put into what you get, you put into it, what you get out of. And all of these things are self-reflective. I love the idea, especially, and it's kind of one of those things applied to like the UFO um, or I guess the UFO mythology and co-creation that Greg Bishop came up with, that these things are reflections of us and we're putting into them what we get out of them. And I think you can take an idea like co-creation and apply that to your whole life, that we are co-creating all of this stuff. So be careful with what you're putting in and, and you're going to get some form of it coming back out. And and number one place to start is online because uh, let's face it, we spend most of our lives online, there's this expression, Twitter isn't real life. And I've never understood that because it's as real as it gets. We spend more time on these media platforms than we do with people we love. And that's a simple fact of, of, of breaths taken in the day. And what we do online, how we communicate online is who we are. That absolutely is as real as it gets. I've never met anyone in private won't acknowledge that they have 
a problem with self-image, that there's parts of themselves that they hate, that they feel badly about. And the last place that they're ever prepared to look is the manner in which they rain shit down on other people, including doing it anonymously or under a cute Twitter handle or what have you. This, the, the, the cruel sarcasm, the rhetorical questions, the finger pointing, the accusations of hypocrisy, always directed away from the mirror, always directed towards someone else. If there's a human interconnectedness, which I firmly believe there is, and that's prompted by the question of these ESP experiments and so forth, if we share in some sort of a, a force or a mind or a psyche or an intellect that goes beyond cognition, motor skill, then that tells us that there's a human commonality. And pissing on another person has to involve the wind blowing that piss back on us, even if in the form of shame. And then we sublimate that shame by just going back to the pipe and taking another hit and getting that momentary charge that comes from uh, pissing on another person. And that doesn't mean that you can't be blunt. That doesn't mean that you can't state your values. That doesn't mean that you can't call out injustice if you feel so motivated to. But engaging in the humiliation of other people exacts a price in self-image. Because it's a, if we are a common humanity, then it stands to reason that that's the case. And even if one just wants to rely upon standard psychological models, the shame that we feel from doing that, because it is a blow against one's primal conscience, which I think does exist. I think the idea of human reciprocity, sometimes expressed as karma, does exist. And the price that's paid for that is probably a kind of shame, which we escape from again by going back to the same practice and getting that momentary roller coaster charge of insulting, humiliating, denigrating another person, including a celebrity. There's no free fucking um, dance ticket in any of, of this. And pissing on somebody does exact a personal price. And it, the, the, the price is felt in poor self-image. So I always tell people, if you want to stand taller, dedicate one hour, one measly hour to desisting from trash talk online and see what happens. See what happens in 24 hours. See if you don't stand taller. Uh, uh, these problems that we face online are global problems. And we can't just blame it all on Elon Musk or Zuck or an algorithm or what have you, it's only going to loosen uh, through the accountability, if you want to put it that way, of the individual. And it's not some altruistic thing because it goes right to the heart of your own self-image. Yeah, no, that's perfect. And so important to be said, because it's easy to get lost in all of that. It's easy to get lost in, you know, and I really think that these things are self-reflective and these are probably, you know, I'm probably some of the last generation where I had new life before the internet. Like, you know, I got the internet yeah, same. in high school. So like, I remember when shit talking took place, like in photocopy zines and Maxim rock and roll and things like that. And there's always been that element, but the access to each other and the amount, like there was also always a door you could close. You could always shut that off really easy. And that 
off switch is harder to hit now. And for a whole bunch of reasons, we don't have to go down. But I wanted you to state that just because I think it's so important for people to hear and you do it so eloquently. And it, it means a lot to me. I, um, again, in the kind of circles that I function in as far as the paranormal stuff and thing, I get kind of some blowback sometimes for being too positive about this stuff and being like, you know, it's like this stuff fucks up people's lives and blah. And I'm like, yeah, there's scary stuff. There's bad stuff. That's not like what I'm saying. But if you look deeper into any of this, whether it's like a cryptid account, a bedroom invader thing or any of the, there's usually some sort of spiritual growth or creative growth that happens to the people encountering these things. Even if you look at someone like Mufon's website, who's fucking stupid and like just cause like uh. date lights in the sky and like has a million problems. Even those guys have as part of their questionnaire, how does this affect you spiritually? Did you experience any ESP or any uh, other uh, extra physical things after this experience? So even these very materialist nuts and bolts people know there's value in that side of these experiences. And I've heard you talk a lot about how awesome it is that things like the 2017 article in New York Times came out and is getting the kind of global weirdening moving and this uh, mainstreamification of the UFOs. And I really love hearing you talk about that because I do think that anything that gets people to think a little weirder is good overall and kind of injects that novelty point. And I've also heard people in that are kind of more ingrained in these uh, worlds of UFOs ufology or paranormal talk about how that article marked a d or denoted this kind of shift that in the paranormal everything was going towards more of like uh what dr jeffrey kreichel is pushing for and these people that are more about the meaning and not the mechanism but then there was this resurgence of nuts and bolts stuff because of the new york times article and this new invigoration of uh, people getting into these things for the first time all this stuff that everyone who had been involved was kind of over and kind of found boring as far as the government things and they wanted to talk about how this relates to the person's inner life and the artistic life the things i really kind of jive with and still fall in that camp of it all but i think both sides are important i think it's important because that nuts and bolts and what they did in the new york times offers a gateway for your everyday person to eventually discover dr jeffrey kripal's work or all these people that write very thoughtfully about these experiences and even if it's only two percent of the people and most of them stay with the government boring tic-tac shit at least there's two percent more people that are getting into this uh bigger picture of stuff absolutely and one of the reasons why i guess i'm interested in marrying the material sciences to the esoteric is that if a person has a justified belief in the paranormal or a justified belief in the extra physical, that opens up the door to experiences. I mean, what is the triggering mechanism of the placebo response? It's hopeful expectancy. The belief that something is going to occur has a therapeutic component. We've seen that over and over, or it can have a negative component. And if a person has a justified belief in the extra physical, that, to my mind, and I think this is definitely supported in individual experience, uh, placebo, neuroplasticity, and so on, that, to my mind, actually makes the road to experiencing those qualities more open, easier. Yeah. It facilitates it. And so 
if if a wish in and of itself, an honestly rendered, intimately felt, passionately convicted wish is sufficient to engender the creative agencies of the psyche, well, believing in that possibility is going to help facilitate that. It's going yes. to invest you with at least sufficient confidence to make the effort to try, which would be absent if that belief weren't there. So, yeah, I think that 2017 article was revolutionary, not only in terms of our culture, but in terms of evoking individual possibility. And I I watch for those things very carefully. I spend, uh, I, in Daydream Believer, I have a very, very long chapter on psychical research. And one of the things I say to the reader is that I'm exploring this stuff, not just because I'm interested in it, and I hope you'll be interested in it too, but because if I can validate to you, as I have to myself, that belief in the extra physical is, is supported, it stands on a solid basis, that unlocks possibilities, it seems to me, in the individual. It certainly has for me, and I can't imagine that my life is exceptional compared to anybody else's. So anything that helps facilitate uh, experience, whether it's something intimate, whether it's something from the sciences, uh, to me, uh, points us towards possibilities. Yes, and it's such a good access point to people who have trouble grooving with the more heady stuff or the more philosophical. And I think all access points are important because I think the world, uh, as cheesy as this might sound, the world is a better place the more creative people's lives are. And these are the things that remind you of like finding your first book about Bigfoot as a kid in the library or like discovering Absolutely. scary stories to tell in the dark. And this like being able to live in this wondrous worldview, I think is so important with, I, I feel like what we've seen in culture the last couple of years is is incredibly important as far as the progression of ethics and morals or those type of things and like socialist issues and um, all, all of those type of reforms. But I think they're all drug faster by imagination. I think those things are affected by our global mythology. There's this amazing um, point that I everyone that's listening to this is probably tired of hearing me talk about, but I'm going to anyway, that Grant Morrison makes in his book um, that oh, me, in his book called super gods that it's just this thought experiment he plays around with where the superheroes that we knew were at one point part of our world. They were part of the 3d world. He says they were corporeal entities that were saving the world all the time, but they realized that no matter how many times they put out the fire, stop the bank robber, stop the comet from hitting earth. None of that's going to stop unless they change the global mythology. So they made the choice to insert themselves into the 2d, into art, into imagination, because to change, to use a symbol like Superman to change the global mythology is more effective than using a physical Superman stopping alien invasions or anything else. And that makes so much sense to me in a lot of ways. And I think the more that we realize there's power in the stories that we tell ourselves and the the, the creative aspects of life, the more that like we can affect that change that you're talking about on a personal basis. I, I think that's beautifully put. That's beautifully put. Thought forms, ideas, expressions that that strike us as new, even if they're not new to other people, but are reaching us for the first time, are incredibly vivifying, and they they open us to new possibilities. It's the possibility I first felt it 
age 17 when I was staring stoned into the mirror and heard the dead Kennedys come on a college radio station holiday in Cambodia. It just opened up oh. a whole world to me that 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 wasn't felt before. And you, you never know when that moment is going to happen. And when it happens, let it in. Exactly. Oh, that's beautiful. I often say this podcast is a continuation of my high school stoner ideas that I don't get to have with people nearly enough now that I'm an adult. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> because there's a lot of value, in, like that going down that uh, Terrence McKenna rabbit hole, or like any of those like amazing kind of uh, very divisive thinkers of our time. And I'm going to wrap this up soon because I think this was a beautiful place to kind of kind of. Uh, tie this in a bow but there is something i heard you speak of that i did want to touch on as far as our generation kind of being um void of like great teachers in that spiritual occult type of way and i i've been thinking about this like global narrowing of the imagination that seems to be happening whether you think about it in like disney owning ip for everything and there's not new space things there's just new star wars and this investment of initial ip and less of the uh, one of those weird dichotomies where there's more access to be an original voice but there's also less access at the same time to uh, spread that voice and how those two things are kind of related the narrowing of those teachers and the access to the uh deeper thinkers on the occult side and the narrowing of like mythology in general how there's some sort of connection in my brain there and i i just kind of wanted to throw that out to you no i think your instinct is right I, I was talking several years ago to a guy who teaches at one of the waldorf schools the educational system that rudolf steiner founded and in the waldorf schools they discourage mass media intake and i asked him for his perspective on that and as somebody who works in media, I have some questions about that. And he said to me, all right, well, um, think of a, a St. Bernard. And I said, okay. And he's like, all right, now um, think of uh, Snow White. And so, okay. And he said, so when you thought of the St. Bernard, uh, that image belongs to you alone. It's totally original. But when you thought of Snow White, of course, you thought of the Disney version of Snow White, didn't you? And I said, yes. And he said, well, that, that myth has been in our culture for hundreds and hundreds of years. But nowadays, everyone has the same image of Snow White. And it can be very limiting. And, and I thought his point was well taken. I thought it was right on. I'm not going to desist from my... Um, desist from my media diet necessarily, especially since the Waldorf schools uh, like to point to the actress Jennifer Aniston as one of their prize uh, graduates. So she's in mass media, last I checked. Um, yep, but yep. the point is that we have to go in directions that permit us to augment that. And that means thinking outside of categories of intake that we consider suited to whatever subculture we identify with. I was reading um, an interview in the New York Times a few days ago with a novelist from Sarajevo, and he was asked if there's any kinds of books that he doesn't read. And he said, yes, uh, self-help, especially self-help manuals. And I get it. There's a kind of cultural snobbery around that where it's like, I don't go in for that, you know, um, uh, false promising, uh, highly formatted, social reinforcing bullshit. But it's a terrible kind of limit because if you've categorized a whole class of books, as we're all apt to do, how do you have any idea what 
gold, you are disparaging what it is you're throwing out with the trash simply because you've labeled it a forethought as such. And mm -hmm. I was interested to find just maybe like 24 hours later, I was reading a book called The Third Mind by the artists uh, Brian Geisen and William Burroughs. And it's all about their cut-up technique, which I've come to like increasingly value. And both Burroughs and Geisen in the book said they got their idea from The Third Mind from what else? A self-help book, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, who talks about that concept. And I thought to myself, that's wonderful, because if these two avant-garde artists, as this dude in the New York Times was doing, had shut themselves off, from forms of communication, they might not have hit upon that idea that was hugely enriching for them, for other people that I'm grooving to as I'm reading their book, The Third Mind, which they're attributing in its in its nascent form to an idea they got out of Think and Grow Rich. So we all need to be super careful about these cultural categorizations that say, I don't read that, I don't participate in this, I don't watch that, I don't, you know, uh, none of us are going to unplug uh, in all likelihood from mass media unless you make a decision to live off the grid. And if you do, bravo. But unless you're doing that, mass media is going to be a fundamental part of your life. So I can't fix that, and I'm not sure it needs fixing. But don't get into these categorizations that are going to block out a mysterious visitor who could be a deity in disguise who has something to give you. Uh, the ancients used to value hospitality, and there were a lot of uh, religious, spiritual, ethical parables that turn that talk about people turning away a stranger at the door, and then invariably somebody lets in that stranger who's some sort of a, a deific or demonic presence in disguise who bestows riches or something upon that person. We're turning away strangers at the door all the time due to these categorizations. Yeah, and some of those strangers you need to let in. Like, there's 100% that. That's and exactly... some may be fucking dangerous, you know, as, as <laughs> we're saying, but there's consequences to life no matter what. A guy could sit in his house watching cartoons all day, and there's going to be consequences, and you know, he might have a much shorter life expectancy than a skateboarder. You know, there's going to be unknown consequences in connection with anything. I don't think that those consequences uh, get heightened by generosity of spirit. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. And when you uh, avoid those things, the friction seems to find you. Like if you do live a life where you're trying to avoid that type of, you know, <laughs> I, I've heard you speak a lot about how friction seems to be an important part of growth and ideas and creativity in a, in a certain way. And if you try to lead that sit inside all day and just watch TV and avoid the friction of being a human, it seems to find you in a uh, way that's tenfold, you know, it's, it's not going to just and, and avoid you. Friction, friction has been the impetus for some of the breakthroughs in my own life. Uh, maybe somebody directed a criticism at me and I was hurt or I was angered by the criticism, but I thought, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's something to work with there. Uh, not necessarily based upon the premise of their being right, but based upon the premise of their criticism, perhaps framing the issue in a way that I don't agree with. And suddenly I find a moment of clarity where I'm like, wait a minute. Um, if you're saying, let's say I'm outwardly focused, 
Uh, and I'm hurt by that because in the spiritual culture, that's supposed to be something that we want to avoid getting wrapped up. In. Well, wait a minute. Maybe I don't need to avoid getting wrapped up in that. Maybe my so-called outward focus is as valuable as my so-called inward focus. Maybe they're, the two are porous. Maybe the two are one and the same. Maybe there's a whole. William Blake wrote, opposition is true friendship. And to really live with that statement can be very valuable. Friction has provided me with some of the great moments of clarity in my life. Yeah. And it's just another example of that paradoxical magic that is humans. Like we need that friction to be whatever that next chapter is sometimes. And it's I think the price of creativity. You know, if, yeah. if Adam and Eve hadn't been expelled from the garden, humanity wouldn't be itself. We would be kept yes. poodles in an aquarium somewhere. We would be unrecognizable. And of course, there's pathos, there's tragedy, there's friction, sometimes there's violence. But the fact is, without that friction, where would the impetus for growth come from? Where would fire come from if there wasn't friction? Absolutely. And I think this... All, everything we've just been talking about through this whole conversation, if nothing else, if people can understand the value of paradoxical thinking more, I think that's like one of the best takeaways from all of this stuff because we're living in a world that's increasingly getting weirder and fucking weirder and is not slowing down anytime. So the more that we can be comfortable with holding the idea that this is not good or bad or one, not a this or that, but a yes end and just kind of uh, get comfortable. There's, I wish I could remember her name but uh she's a professor at university of delaware and her whole thing is going into corporations and explaining to them how paradoxical thinking can help their environment and how they need to stop looking at themselves as holding one value or another value that you are this amalgamation of ideas and she, essentially like all of these kind of spiritual and esoteric sounding ideas she's putting towards like these corporate boards now that are like trying to figure out how to continue this weird system that they are it's it's interesting to see weird thinking get applied to very structured entities and i think that that structure anti-structure play is very important and it's just going to keep becoming more important in our world as we uh, progress here <laughs> people shouldn't be afraid of paradox they shouldn't be afraid of contradiction um in fact i think it's necessary to be comfortable with those things uh, in the search and in fact Paradox just has to be lived with. It, it, it just, it, it's a place to reside. It's not a place to run away from. And that's why if you look at it via that kind of Douglas Rushkoff quote, where, you know, the squishiness is kind of the magic, look at it as a good thing, as a bonus, as a superpower. To, uh, I love, I haven't got to read Jeff Kripal's new book yet, but his book of the superhumanity seems to be touching yeah. on a lot of this stuff. And I can't wait to dive into that because I do think there's something really special about us fucking weird meat bags with this, uh, this tie into this global consciousness or what, I mean, he gets into stuff that we could have a whole other podcast, I feel like, uh, as far as like the dual aspect monism and all these things that are like words that sound beautiful, but I don't really know what mean in a lot of ways that I think. Yeah, I yeah, I think. Well, I'm delighted to come back anytime. I really dug yes. our discussion. I keep going, but I I, I have to go no. get a haircut. That's a perfect place to. But I really thank you. Your questions. No, thank you. Thank you.
dude, that means a lot to me, Mitch, because again, I have been a huge fan of your work and what not only your books, but your podcast um, appearances and things have meant a lot to me. So thank you for everything you do. And thank you for taking the time to be here. And stopping for a haircut is the perfect button on this being we started <laughs> talking about aesthetics. And uh, yeah, it's very important. So <laughs> The new book that you have out now is on certain places. It's amazing. Uh, is there? I know you're working on another book currently. Do you yeah, want to share anything else? Yeah, Modern Occultism, which is the history of the occult from uh, Cleopatra right up to this moment. And uh, a lot of caffeine in this household. <laughs> working very hard to, on it. I'm going to have to send you a little package with some more caffeine dad deer collection there. because Thank I you. Got, more than I can shake a stick at. And I would love to uh, to help motivate some of this work there. Appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for being here. I'll link everything below for everyone Sweet. to check out. And yeah, enjoy the rest of your day, Mitch. Take care. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Yep.